The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. When I was a kid, Halloween was one of my favorite days of the year. I mean, what's not to like? Scary witches and you get to eat all kinds of sweets and nobody tells you to stop. Well, wait a minute. They do kind of tell you to stop when you're eating them all in one day. But you know what? That is one cool holiday. And I still think it even today. But something I know today that I didn't know then is that we have a misunderstanding about what's behind this particular night of the year. And we're going to straighten some of that out today. And then we're going to finish up with, well, you know, the other Halloween tradition, eating sweets. Hey, everybody. (laughs) I'm Victoria Moran, and I am your host for the Main Street Vegan Podcast. So proud to be doing this and so happy to be with all of you. If you are new to all things Main Street Vegan, please check out our website, MainStreetVegan.net, and find out all the great fun and pro-vegan things that are going on there. We'd love to have you visit, maybe subscribe to our blog and newsletter, or join the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Facebook group and really be in the inner circle and have some say about what we do here and who comes on and the kinds of topics you're interested in. So I promise you a Halloween show, and we're going to have so much fun today. After the break, I'll be introducing a wonderful young cookbook author and food blogger, Hannah Kaminsky, who's made a huge name for herself in the world of vegan, particularly in the world of vegan sweets and desserts. And right now, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce to you Chris Gerke. She is a vegan and a witch who lives in Salem, Massachusetts. She is a graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy and a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. She teaches tarot, intuitive development, and herbalism classes around the country. 
She used to be an Air Force officer and travels around the globe to experience vegan food cultures. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Victoria. I'm really excited to be a part of this as I listen to the podcast many times. Oh, bless you. Well, I'm so excited to have you because I have studied your religion. People who listen to this uh, show often know that my academic background is comparative religions. I'm fascinated by the religions of the world. There's so much beauty in witchcraft, and yet I think it is probably the most misunderstood religion that exists. So tell us, what does it mean to you to be a witch? I think um, the meaning of being a witch is kind of personal to everybody. There's um, many, you know, theories and philosophies of where it came from. And with the introduction to Wicca back in the 50s with um, a gentleman named Gerald Gardner, the term Wicca and witch has been interchangeable. When I think of witchcraft, for me, um, it's a practice of connecting with nature, being in harmony with the universal energy, and using that universal energy to create change for good. Um, and that's one of the reasons when we think of do no harm, one of the reasons that it's the reason why I chose to eat the way that I do. For me, when you're, you're working with magic and you're working with energies to, um, you know, eat something that has that fear, that has everything that, that went along with it, I feel for me personally, it's not conducive to create an effective change for positive outcome. And, and that's where, for me, witchcraft comes into play. To be a Wiccan doesn't necessarily mean you're a witch. Um, there are many people who practice Wicca um, as a religion that don't consider themselves witches. Um, the whole piece of the magic part and the ability to create change and to harness that universal energy is where witchcraft um, you know, nowadays reclaiming our power as women, reclaiming our power as any um, gender for that matter um, is really becoming, you know, a, a, having a reinsurgence, so to speak. It is indeed. There are books in all the bookstores, lots and lots of shelves. I know reading some of them, I've learned something you alluded to. I believe it's called the, the Wiccan Read first harm none and then do as you will or something like that. I probably didn't quote it correctly. No, that's correct. Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay. And that is so vegan. And yet I think a lot of people are very frightened, even of the words. Where did all of that come from? Um, that's a really good question that would take like a really deep dive because we could get into, um, we could go way back Um and some of the times when I'm uh, teaching my classes and someone asks that, I, you know, and everyone has their own thought process on this. Um, but for me, when I've read what I've read, to summarize it very simply, it was removing the power of a female, um, removing that intuitive piece that we have, and placing a connotation through all our religious persecution through um, out the world, you know, of the world and out time. Um, and taking that away from us. And, and um, I think that um, going into that realm, when you think about the connotations of it being evil, when you look back in time and you have the healers, you have the, the you know, the wise women, the, the, the women who would be, you know, creating potions, quote unquote, 
um, or healing remedies when you, you know, you didn't have access to health care. You didn't have access to someone to, you know, fix some, a cold or, or make you feel better. Um, and so some of the healers, when you think about it back in the time, were generally the women that were taking care of the house, taking, you know, being at home. And then, you know, you, they're always cleaning the home with the broom in the hand. And so as we got through, you know, the middle, uh, you know, middle ages, um, medieval times, uh, you know, you've got the, the monks claiming the, the healing potions and the healing remedies and the herbs. And then there became a money factor to it. So when you remove the um, evilness, because, you know, plants can't be associated with the devil, because then if they were associated with the devil, then, you know, that put the um, devil on to the people with the healing powers, right? So to create an evilness, I feel in my readings and what I've read, the, it was placed on the women, those healers, because if you put that connotation of witch on somebody, um, it made them the evil ones. So you would have to seek out the other ones um, that had the remedies. Mm. So I think most people in the United States who um, studied history at all know about what happened in your town, Salem, Massachusetts, uh, back in colonial times. I don't think everybody is aware of what went on throughout Europe as well as in the U.S. with massive murders and executions of um, women and men who, who were believed to be witches. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I can definitely um, tell you about some of the, the history that went on in Salem because that's one of the misconceptions when we have a lot of tourists or even my you know friends when they come, they believe that those who were accused here in Salem were burned when that was not true. They were um, hanged. And um, the, the, the theory behind it was when Roger Conant, and if anyone comes to Salem, in front of the Witch Museum, there's a huge bronze statue of him. He was the founder of Salem. He brought a group of immigrants from Cape Ann to what was called Namkeag. Salem was um, a settlement named Namkeag at the time. And what he decided to do is to call the town Salem because it was a word derived from Hebrew that means peace. Um, so a playoff of Shalom. And so it's kind of ironic that about 60 years later or so, when we had a, you know, pretty conservative Puritan movement that came into the Salem area. And it's not just particularly Salem, it's the surrounding areas of Danvers and Beverly. So there was, um, you know, a larger area of everyone being accused. And it was primarily farmland. So during the, um, that particular winter, it was a very harsh winter. And if you think about it, you know, when you're without you know, electricity or heat, you know, it became very, very boring and probably very, um, you know, extremely cold. So it started off with one girl um, visiting someone, which I'm sure in the history books we've heard of, Kitsuba, and getting all these, um, you know, ideas in their head and probably, you know, um, some sort of fascination with the whole thing, getting caught up with it and, you know, being bored. And when the first person was accused, it kind of proliferated from there. And back in the times when you accused somebody of witchcraft, you know, the, the city, the state um, could take, um, you know, everything you own. So when that kind of, um, you know, was realized, what seemed to be happening and what some of the current research shows is that if you accuse someone that was doing better with uh, their farm than you, 
everything of theirs gets taken away as they await trial. And therefore, what's left is your farm. And so a lot of researchers now believe that um, it had, uh, economics had a lot to do with it. Because, um, and whether or not these people were richers or not, it depends on what your definition of which is really, truly. But the, the fact of the matter, these were devout Puritans that could recite the Lord's Prayer right before they were executed. Um, because those executing them, you know, if they thought you were truly a witch, they didn't want to fear what would happen to, to them in the afterlife. You could curse them. So ironically, those who said they were a witch walked away, which was only one, Chichiba. Um, and also she was a slave and didn't, you know, so she didn't have much material wealth. Um, and the ones that could have saved their lives simply by saying, I'm a witch. Instead, they chose to recite the Lord's Prayer because they were devout. And um, that's the irony. So the difference between, you know, what happens in Europe and what happens here um, is, you know, it, it still happens today, you know, in just different ways. Um, uh, the, you know, accusations and everything that's going on in this world um, is very similar to what <laughs> happened in 1692 and, and before that. Wow. So what's it like today living in Salem? I've been there a couple of times. It's a delightful community. Yeah, it's absolutely. It, I try to um, think of where else I want, would want to move in October because it gets pretty crazy. I live right near the Witch Museum, so it's hard to, you know, get out of my driveway or go to, <laughs> go to Trader Joe's. Um, but then I think to myself, where else would I want to live? And there's not one other place that I can think of. Um, our community is great, and if, if you know you're with that magical belief, you have so many people that are around you that share that belief, and you don't seem like you're odd. You actually can, you know, talk to somebody about some of the things you've researched, and um, you know you practice. So it's definitely a quaint little town, and it has a lot of maritime history too. And it's only 23 minutes from Boston, so a quick train ride. So it's the perfect, it's the perfect little spot. Oh, it sounds so nice. So what percentage of the population do you think practice some form of, of witchcraft or Wicca? That's a good question. Um, I did hear one of the tour guides once say one out of every nine. I don't know how statistically accurate that is, but I would probably say one out of five. <laughs> um, but um, I, I'm not sure. I, I couldn't answer that accurately, accurately, but I do know that the population would be pretty great here in this mm. town. So even though witchcraft is not often well thought of by people who are devoted to other religions, one thing that everybody seems to have in common is that this, this idea of kindness to all can be found in pretty much every religion. Sometimes you have to look a little harder for it, but it's there. And yet almost Nobody, and I shouldn't say nobody, but a very small percentage of people of any faith tradition choose to be vegan. And in my experience, this is also true with um, the witches and Wiccans I've known. Why did? Why are you different? And why do you not think that the vegan conversion is coming any more rapidly? That's a really good question. And I actually was having a conversation with a couple of my friends who are vegetarian slash vegan. And we were, we talk about this all the time. And that is a really good question because I, and, and not only is it a good question, I do think there's a uh, more people leaning that way because I've found many 
other of which is that I've gone to dinner with or lunch with and they'll ask for the vegan menu or they'll ask for the vegetarian menu. And I was like, ooh, I found my people. Um, so I have seen an increase of that happening. And also in Salem, a lot of the restaurants here will have vegan menus and I've noticed several vegan items being added to it as, you know, as it grows. So I actually am getting really excited about that because there used to only be one restaurant that we had to go to. But that is a really good question. I'm not sure. I think that when you're really in tune with the energies, when you're really trying to create a change for the positive, I honestly don't understand how anyone can't feel that. When, um, you know, it's been a long time since I've, I've eaten any flesh. Um, and I, I know that as soon as I stopped, that connection for me was greater to everything about the earth magic, everything about natural magic. Um, and I don't personally see how anyone could create something or manifest something when you are consuming an energy that is not conducive to what you're trying to achieve. Um, so that's a great question. It's something we talk about all the time. <laughs> you know how we vegans, we talk a lot about being vegan. Um, now, you were an Air Force officer, and I think some people would think, well, that's a little bit unusual for being vegan. But oh my goodness, you're an Air Force officer, or you were, and a witch? <laughs> so take us back a little bit. How, how did you manage to bring together all these diverse aspects and interests and parts of yourself? Well, you know, there came a point where I think people <laughs> automatically knew that I, I, honestly, I don't know how I ended up in the Air Force. It was kind of... Um, it was kind of uh, an interesting moment in high school. Then I ended up staying, went to college, and then commissioned. And I was always not the norm. In fact, I remember taking a workshop, and they had a stand-up after taking a personality-based test and said, how are you even working for the government, let alone an officer? And um, I, I said, you know what? I ask myself that every day. And I said, my answer would be is that I want to create change. You know, there there's so many people that um, now I'm a civilian and I'm still doing the same job that I have, but there's so many people now that will come up to me into my office and ask, hey, Chris, you know, we're traveling or we're trying to do this on work. What's the best moon phase to do it on? What would be the best day to do this? And so what has happened is I had the opportunity to, um, you know, experience all the things that I experienced, bring them together and allow everyone to learn from them. And I think when someone sees, oh, well, she's not really that weird, you know, and she's actually, you know, pretty cool to be around, at least I'd like to think so. Um, I think it creates um, a sense of comfort, but also interest, like, um, you know, to be able to ask me about certain things and to say, you know, well, how do you do this? And I found a lot of the coworkers that I have coming to my classes because, you know, um, when we're talking about reconnecting to um, our intuition and trusting our hunches and focusing on our, you know, our true will and, and making that achievable, I think everyone truly wants that. It's, you know, we live in a time of technology that has just, you know, you look on social media and, and you know, it can be depressing and can be upset and, you know, everything gets jumbled. But if you know that you truly have the inner power that you don't have to worry about someone controlling you. You have the decision to control. You have the answers within. You can reconnect to the earth. Um, I think it gives everyone an inner power to be able to achieve things that they thought weren't possible because they were told they weren't possible. 
And by working in such an environment that I have, I think, and at least I would hope, that I have spread a little bit of that to people who would not normally be around someone like me. <laughs> so what are your basic beliefs? I think so many people listening have probably never spoken with anyone who practices this craft. So just tell us, do, do you believe in God or, or goddess or prayer or do you do spells? Do you do rituals? Just give us a little insight. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that I believe in the universal earth energy. I believe that, you know, there's a universal energy that flows around and we are conduits of it. I don't believe in one God. I don't believe in one goddess. I believe in what we need to harness at the time for whatever we're trying to manifest. Uh, yes, spells, spells are like prayers. When we do, um, when we think of uh, something and we direct our energy, there's no difference in doing a prayer versus a spell. So if someone says, I'll pray for you, I said, I will take that. And um, I said, I will do a spell for you. It's it's in the same same lines. Ritual is extremely important for me. A lot of the times when I'm doing things, I'd like to do them by myself, which is called solitary. And that is because, you know, I'm trying to harness a certain energy, whether it be from, um, you know, the moon or the, the earth or a god or a goddess. And I like to focus it and be very cognizant of who is in my circle to create that energy. Because when you do gather, everyone in there is sending their intent into the circle. They're, in, they're sending their intent for a particular outcome. And if there's one person that is not going to complete that circle, it doesn't have the same effect. So when I do do rituals in groups, it's very important who I'm doing with them. But when we think about it, when we gather um, for a particular outcome and when we gather to create change in a positive way, if we all did this in a correct manner, regardless of religions or what you identify as or who you call yourself, um, you know, there's such an you know, an unbelievable power that we can, um, you know, manifest to do something for the good of all. So I know that there is a circle of the year, wheel of the year, and many holidays, and actually many of the holidays have kind of been translated in, into more conventional life and, and, and brought onto the Christian calendar with other names and, and intentions. So could you just tell us a little bit about the holiday that is happening this week uh, what's it called in the witchcraft tradition, and what is it all about? Oh, yes. So Samhain is um, October 31st, the turn, turn of the wheel. Um, it's also what we identify as the witch's new year. And so it was a Celtic tradition um, that became, you know, very popular because, you know, you'd have bonfires, you'd have celebrations, and what it was was to ward off um, the, you know, evil, you know, spirits of so, so forth. Um, which has now transcended into, you know, jack-o'-lanterns and that kind of thing. Um, but for me, it's a very, it's one of my most favorite, when you were talking earlier about Halloween being your favorite time of year, it was one of my most favorite times of the year, my whole entire life. And, you know, my family has all, always dabbled in, um, you know, I grew up on, with, in a Catholic, Irish Catholic family, family, but I watched my mom do her psychic circles and then would go to Sunday school on Sunday the following day. And um, what I would always really get excited about was that energy that you could feel in the air during Halloween. And for me, once I got older and learned more about, um, you know, the holidays and the traditions and finding out that it's the new year for us, I always felt like there's in the wind and in the air and in the smell of the leaves, 
there was change coming. And so on October 31st, I always dress up in my finest and that's my biggest time to, um, you know, send out into the universe what I would like to reclaim, what I would like to um, manifest in the coming year. But it's also a time to acknowledge those who have passed on because when we're talking about the wheel of the year with Salen and on the opposite side, we have Beltane. The other one, what we call the, the, the veil is extremely thin. And when we say the veil, it's between the physical world and those who have crossed over. So it's a time to honor those who you've loved, who have passed. Um, and that's when you usually feel like, you know, people will say they've had experiences. They feel like someone who, you know, a loved one who has passed is trying to make communication. They come to them in their dreams because of that veil being thin. But it's also a very good time for people to be open, to honor their loved ones who are, are no longer with us, and also send intention to the coming year. Oh, what a beautiful and succinct explanation. I think we've all learned so much in this short time with you. Um, everybody listening, uh, Chris's website is darkmoontarotsalem.com. She's on Instagram as dark underscore moon underscore tarot. And we'll put all the rest of her social media on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So may I wish you, Chris Gerke, a very happy Samhain and a wonderful year ahead. Thank you so much for all of this enlightenment. And everybody else, oh, you're ever so welcome, ever so welcome. I could listen to you for the longest time. And stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to talk about sugar. Only this time, we're going to talk about it in a good way. Stay with us. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan Program. And guess what we're going to do right now? We are going to move on to the other great reputation of Halloween. And that's a time to explore, experiment with, and delight in the wonders of sweets. You know, they get a bad rap sometimes, but sometimes a little of what you fancy does you good. So very quickly, um, I want to do a shout out to our sponsor, Compliment. These are vegans who have created two wonderful supplements for other vegans. So some of the people involved in that are Matt Frazier, the meat-free athlete, Pam Ferguson, RD, PhD, and Dr. Joel Kahn, MD, who will actually be a guest on this program in the month of November. So here's the deal. Everybody knows that vegans need vitamin B12, and we probably need those fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, the ones our body can use without having to do a lot of translation, 
And probably we're going to need some vitamin D2, just like other people. D3 also, because <laughs> there's a D2 and a D3, and it gets so complicated. But the lovely people at alpineorganics.co have taken the complication out in a wonderful spray called Complement, where you get all of those. And their other product is Complement 2, which is a capsule that also contains other hard-to-get nutrients like zinc and selenium and, and vitamin K2. So if you want to take a look at that, visit alpineorganics.co. If you want to save some money on compliment spray, just put Main Street Vegan in all caps in the discount box. And if you want to save some money on Compliment Plus, then your discount code becomes Main Street Vegan in all caps with a plus sign after it. Okay, now we're nourished. Now we can have dessert. And nobody knows more about desserts than our guest, Hannah Kaminsky. Hannah has developed an international following for her delicious recipes and mouthwatering food photography as an award-winning, at the award-winning blog, bittersweetblog.com. She's written half a dozen cookbooks, including vegan desserts, vegan a la mode, easy as vegan pie, and the brand new Sweet Vegan Treats. She's passionate about big flavors and simple techniques and works in the San Francisco Bay Area, developing recipes and photographing food from morning to night. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I think you were one of the first vegan recipe bloggers I ever heard of back when blog was a funny word and I wasn't quite sure what it meant. When did you start your blog? That was over 13 and a half years ago, and that is an honor, truly. I know there aren't many of us left from that era, but it's still quite something to be among one of the first. Well, it really is, and and you guys went out on a limb. I mean, who knew that anybody would want to get their recipes online? And yet, we still like cookbooks. Why do you think that is? There's a lot to be said for the physical, tactile sensation of having a cookbook and being able to flip through the pages, have that new book smell, lavish over the photos. I mean, I just love having a bookshelf full of books. It's very comforting. But then there's also the convenience of being able to just search in keywords and pull up every recipe for pumpkin puree to use up that last can in your pantry. It's really convenient. And also, I really enjoy not having the bulk of all of the books with me, just being able to condense them onto my phone if I needed to. So I understand both paths of thought. And that's why I'm also happy that all my books are print and digital. Yeah, that's wonderful. I I would be afraid to cook from my phone because I would spill too much stuff on it. My favorite cookbooks I have to replace sometimes two or three times. I guess I'm a really messy cook. (laughs) Yeah, that's why my laptop is filthy. It's just smeared with food. (laughs) Well, good to know that that doesn't break it. I've always worried so much, you know, about getting it wet and this kind of thing. So five out of six of your current cookbooks center on desserts. So why is that? Well, it all goes back to how I got my start in veganism because uh, this was years ago back before all the fake meat burger explosion and all the amazing cheeses we have now, I had a huge sweet tooth and still do. And there just were no good options for me to get vegan desserts. 
and my parents have always been very supportive, but they're not vegan. And they said, if you're going to do this, you have to make all your own food. So that just included all the desserts. And I started baking. Did you bake before or did you just start after you became vegan? I never baked before. I mean, I might have mixed up cookie batter with my mom when I was five, but not in any real way. I just taught myself trial and error, eventually stopped baking these brick breads and it came out better and better. Well, it seems as if vegan desserts and all kinds of vegan baking have really evolved since I became vegan back in the 80s. It seemed then that everything that was supposed to be called a cake was about an inch high and weighed 20 pounds. So have we just learned from experience? It's a combination of a lot of things. Um, Experience, research, and just advances in technology. People are looking at the same ingredients in different ways. Like take, for example, aquafaba. That has just revolutionized vegan baking, made meringues possible. And that's the chickpea brine, the liquid in the can for anyone not familiar. It works just like egg whites. And I don't recall what prompted that, you know, innovation, but discovering that has opened up the door to so many other pastries and baked good creations. And it keeps building on itself. We also have lots of great shortcuts of egg replacers these days. If you don't want to go through the effort of making from scratch, you can just get the powdered vegan egg or the just egg, and it's exactly the same. It's a brave new world and and a wonderful new world that gives us so many possibilities. So what sets your cookbooks apart? Because you really do have a sort of au-cuisine reputation. And part of that, I think, is because of your incredible skills as a photographer. But you and and Frank Costigan, I think, are undisputed in the vegan dessert world as as kind of, um, you know, young queen and mature queen. So why are you so good? Oh, gosh. Well, thank you. Um, I would like to say that I get my style just from having no real pastry background. Um, Traditionally, if you go to cooking school, you're taught French pastry. And that really informs your whole palate. But I just found inspiration through a world of flavors, through, you know, growing up and being able to travel, being that lucky that I could see a lot of the world. And having no reference to color my, um, to, to bias my cooking. So I just found what goes together well, find what I love, and keep playing. I always had the freedom to just experiment. Well, your experiments have come out pretty darn well (laughs) and and beautiful, beautiful too. So I want to ask you about the food photography part of what you do, because I think just about all of us as vegans have become amateur food photographers, and some of us are a lot better at it than others. I once had someone say to me, you don't take very good pictures. You have all those oh, Instagram no. followers because you write good captions. <laughs> but oh, it's true. I'm not visual, but I'm I'm eager to learn. So so tell me and tell the rest of us who aren't fabulous at taking pictures of food what what we should know. Um, few simple rules. Basically, it's all about the light. You can make any you know stew or pile of brown 
burnt toast look decent if you have good light on it. And for me, that means soft, diffused light, not direct, harsh light. Never, never use your flash. Um, I try to put the main light source behind or to the side of the food, and that really helps to flatter it more. Well, that's fascinating. So does that also work when you're doing selfies? Should the light be there too? Oh, God, don't ask me about selfies. I have yet to take a decent one. I can't help you on that. Isn't that amazing? It's also specialized. (laughs) You're so good at food. Okay, so people say you don't want to take a picture facing the light, and yet you're saying put the light behind the food. How does that work? So let's say you're using sunlight, which is my favorite light source because it's generally softer. Um, I don't like artificial lights. They, They look fake. Um, so that would mean having the sun behind the food. If you've got a window, put the food in front of the window, for example. And then you with the camera would be facing the window. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. I will try it Mm -hmm. because I really want my food to look so good that everybody will go vegan. (laughs) I think we all have have that desire. So Exactly. um, And for you, that should be easy because it looks good to begin with. Just about the angles. Yeah. Well, it's something to play with. It's something to play with in our busy lives. So we have been talking a bit about Halloween. Do you have any favorite homemade candies for an occasion such as this? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I'm a sucker for just salt, basic salted caramel. Very simple. But specifically from my cookbook, my latest, Sweet Vegan Treats, the Flaming Hot Peanut Brittle is a big hit. Ooh. It's really, really simple. You could even make it in the microwave. And it's got that, like, spicy, devilish edge to it. So it's more than meets the eye. So spicy peanut brittle yum yum Mm -hmm. yum okay from sweet vegan treats good deal we will look for that i love peanut brittle i it's probably cost cost me a couple of teeth but um mine mine isn't that hard it's a nice soft bite to it nice but you know you're not going to need to have any molars replaced okay that's that's all good so for anyone with peanut allergies you could also do it with almonds which is quite nice Ooh, like that. Now, in Sweet Vegan Treats, you have such an interesting list of ingredients that one might want to keep on hand if you want to be a wonderful vegan baker. And some of them were quite surprising. So I just want to ask you about a couple and what you do with them. One of the things in your list is instant coffee. Why ever on earth? Well, I love just like the hint of bitterness, the complexity that it can add. But in a lot of cases, you don't want to add all the liquid in like a cup of coffee. So this is just the concentrated flavor and you only need a very little bit. Okay. And, and you say in that description, this is not what you'd probably want to drink if you're a coffee connoisseur, but to use in baking right. a little bit of just plain old instant Folgers or whatever uh, will fit Perfect. the bill. And then yeah, you also like talk that little about, accent. <laughs> you also talk about matcha, uh, green tea, mm-hmm. but not in the tea bags. Tell us about that. Right, I adore matcha. Um, I'm really glad it's finally taking on in the states. For a while, I would say that, and people would be like, 
I have no clue what this is. And in fact, in my first cookbook, my greatest embarrassment is that I had a photo of matcha and I included it without labeling it. And the publisher actually printed it as wasabi because they didn't. Oh, it is not wasabi. It is the whole tea leaf, very high quality, finely ground, and it's sold as a powder. Sometimes it will be sold with sweetener added, so make sure you're just getting pure matcha, and you whisk that right into water or non-dairy milk. Very intense, grassy, slightly bitter, green tea, delicious. So is this in some of your recipes, or do we have to guess? Oh, it's in recipes. And when I use matcha, I specifically highlight it because it's a very special flavor. Yeah. So what are a couple of your other favorite special ingredients? Mm, um, Well, I mentioned aquafaba. That's definitely a big one and great to always have on hand because when do you not have chickpeas? I mean, speaking personally. (laughs) Um, Let me think. I don't have any other big secret ingredients just I would say always getting the highest quality, like vanilla. Vanilla is in so many recipes, and everyone knows what vanilla is, but few people realize the impact that different vanilla will make. It is so incredible to taste, especially in really vanilla-forward desserts, like ice creams, frostings. Make sure you're getting the best possible. And if not going for extract, the whole bean, of course, is always best. Mm, that sounds so elegant. And I love vanilla. Now, you mentioned something that I think you're thinking about a lot right now, and that is ice cream. I know you have a new yeah. book in the works about vegan ice cream. So uh, just just give Maybe. us a hint. Give us a clue. Is it going to be the next next trend that we're all making our own ice cream? I really hope so, because there's still this misconception that ice cream is so difficult to make, but it's not. It's just blended and churned. Sometimes I cook it like a custard, but if you can make pudding, you can make ice cream. And the great thing about this upcoming cookbook is that I'm taking a slightly different approach to it. So, of course, there'll still be the traditional, I say, traditionally made scoops with crazy, interesting, exciting flavors. But I'm putting much more emphasis on novelties, cakes, pops, treats. And many of those don't need an ice cream maker at all. So this is a much more accessible, inviting, easy cookbook. Oh, that sounds like lots of fun. So what do you like to eat? What's your favorite vegan meal before you get to dessert? Favorite meal? That is really hard. Um. Sushi is always, you know, top order for me. Always hits the spot. Always good. Um, a good curry, hard to beat, be it Thai or Indian. Oh, man, I really can't just pick one. Well, there's there's a lot to pick from. And I think one of the myths is, oh, my gosh, when you're vegan, you've got nothing to pick from. And I think no if there's way. one... One myth we could get through, it's, oh, no, you have so much in the way of choice. So what, Don't, Hannah? Yeah, going vegan opened up my thing else. Because opened up, we, that, there was I a was, little oh, cutout. You said going vegan oh, opened up. Going vegan opened up my palate more than anything else, because 
before that, I was an incredibly picky eater, and I basically subsisted on ramen and hot dogs until I was 12. So when I went vegan, I decided I don't want to be limited by this, and if it's vegan, I will try it, no matter what it is. And now I love food. Ah, what a great attitude. I think my husband kind of came to that in adulthood. Because he'd, he'd been a pretty standard eater, the kinds of stuff that he'd liked when he was a kid. And I think it, it, when you become vegan, it's just like, okay, the sky's the limit. And I think there's this wonderful oh lightness of being when you know that you're helping others too. So everybody, perspective. it is indeed. So check out Hannah Kaminsky's blog, bittersweetblog.com. Find her on Facebook as My Sweet Vegan and on Twitter and Instagram at bittersweet underscore. And then by all means, check out that spicy peanut brittle and the other delights in sweet vegan treats. Thanks to everyone who's spent this hour with us today. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for believing in the Main Street Vegan program all these years, to Jeff Comfort for engineering, and to you for listening. Be happy, be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Over and out. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.